Hello, I'm Philippe de Montebello, and it is my immense pleasure to welcome you once more to the picture, Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. For this episode of the Picture Podcast, we'll hear from gallery director Michael Findlay, as well as noted art critic and journalist Judd Tully, in a far-ranging conversation about the many sides and the many forces at work in the art market. The two friends discuss international auction houses, changing gallery model, and the growing influence and pressure of art fairs. Welcome once again to the picture. I'm Michael Findlay, and I'm very happy to be here today with uh, a dear friend of mine, noted author, art historian, art critic, Judd Tully. And Judd, what are we going to talk about? Goodness. Well, Michael, we could be talking about the art market. That would be a wild guess. <laughs> I was also thinking, though, that when when you and I you know, talk to each other about the art market, I think we tend to think of the relatively small number of works of art of quite high values that are sold in those evening sales at the auction houses, which commandeer... 90% of the coverage, usually, and which to most people, perhaps, that seems to be what the art market or even the art world consists of. And so, cribbing slightly this morning, I took a look at a report that um, has been on my desk for a while. I've looked at briefly, but not too thoroughly, from Claire McAndrew, who's the who mm. writes the uh, global annual art market report for Art Basel and UBS, uh, the supporters of it. And, you know, I've read her report for a number of years. It's highly detailed. Uh, I do think, however, it paints a fairly accurate picture of Mm. the worldwide art market. And I think even looking rather casually at that, it would appear that what we experienced last week in five evening sales of contemporary art, even though the numbers may have been huge on the page, a very, very, very tiny slice of the annual global art market. And that she seems to reckon that I think over 90% of the works of art purchased globally are are, are under $50,000. There are $64 billion worth of art purchased annually between auction houses and galleries. Amazingly more at galleries than auction houses, perhaps. People don't, wouldn't realize that. And that most of that number consists of relatively modestly priced works of art. So, but that's sort of the bottom of the iceberg, which isn't perhaps particularly newsworthy, but it is the the huge machinery that supports both auction houses and galleries around the world. While we may be feasting our eyes on a very very small number of, of works of art by currently fashionable artists that are selling for very high prices. Yeah, well, I'm totally guilty of participating in that tiny percentage of the super high value lots that 
sell at auction, but that's what I was or have been writing about as a as a journalist. I, I think what you're saying about the McAndrew report, and also it's interesting because she was somewhat famously poached by Art Basel. Yes. And UBS, because for years she was doing the report for TIFAF, the European Fine Art Fair, in a similar vein. And it was so interesting to me, not this most recent one, I believe, but the one before. This is her second time with Art Basel, I think. Yes. The report. But the first one, there was this gigantic gap between her report and her successor at the TAFAF Mm. Institute or whatever it is that does the publishing for TAFAF in terms of Claire McAndrews' report was a much higher value, which is just interesting because you have probably somewhat similar sets of information and just the interpretation is always, you know, up to the number cruncher or analyst or... And I mean, I remember interviewing her, Claire McAndrew, at the time, and and what's so important, it seems, is getting those that data. I I don't, frankly, I don't. I know mm. that I've spoken to Claire about how she gets information, and in some cases, for instance, I guess in some countries like the UK, dealers, for instance, do have to publish. Yes, their, absolutely. Their, their uh-huh. you know their right. their turnover. Other countries, they don't. I think she relies somewhat on export and import figures. Mm. That's probably the case. It's just interesting that um, when you're looking at chunks of information, and I mean, I would, for instance, I would love to be able to see what small gallery, Mm -hmm. primary market exhibitions, how they do. I mean, you can walk in any practically anywhere and you'll see, you know, sold, sold, sold or whatever, even if there is a price list, which hardly exists in the galleries, even though they're mandated by the um, New York City Department of Consumer Affairs. But it's really hard, I think, to get that kind of information that you were bringing up about these smaller private galleries or even large private galleries globally, because it doesn't have that mechanism that the auction houses right. go through in terms of their public relations right. machine. And it's a big machine. And they spend lots of money exactly to produce those kind of, help produce those kind of headlines. By private yeah. galleries, you, you mean uh, art galleries that are open to the public, but exactly. are not auction houses. Exactly, yes. exactly, yes. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this, again, on a global scale. And I, I think that New York City is perhaps uh, an extreme example where the real estate industry or system and the art gallery system have reached almost a kind of a, a on one sense, a fruitful marriage for some and an impasse for others, I think there are probably galleries operating around the world in places which have more reasonable rents uh, where they can manage a primary market gallery with a good stable of artists, some of whom sell, some of whom don't, and be able to support themselves and those artists. 
and not be put out of business because their storefront can be leased to a, a restaurant for three times what they're paying. So I'm, I think that New York is unfortunately an, an extreme example of where that kind of business struggles. But I do think it seems to be thriving in many parts of the world with artists who are not necessarily becoming world famous overnight, but who are in their own regions and their own places being supported, doing good work, and being bought and enjoyed by people who are not necessarily buying solely for speculation or solely for prestige. I I think that's um, a positive outlook about the state of the gallery world. I mean, you tend to read about it more in the art press, which is now practically 85% online. But you read about, even the New York Times would report about restaurants closing. You'd see reports of galleries closing, oftentimes because they've lost their space or they've been pushed out of their space. And then it's very difficult to, again, particularly in New York, and, and I think that is a good exception to the rule because of just the density of New York and the value of real estate and, you know, where storefront galleries practically on the Lower East Side command the same square footage price per square foot as, you know, a top Chelsea gallery. Yeah, and that's very problematic. I mean, it's not the same thing, but there's this great movie theater on Houston, Sunshine Cinema, that was converted into a movie theater from some previous, some sort of warehouse. And they showed so-called art house films and excellent, very successful. And the developers of that same movie theater recently just sold out to another developer. And I mean, that that was not a failing enterprise by any stretch. But anyway, what you're saying is spot on. I mean, I know that not only galleries in the smaller scale than the giants of the world that we know the right, names of, right. Aquavella Gallery. Well, I we're mean, not I, a giant. I know, when, I know, when, I'm teasing. In fact, we're, we're an ungiant in terms of the fact that we are a shop. We're an old-fashioned shop. Yeah. We occupy one space, one building, one town in one country rather than a big-box-style gallery, and I don't say that pejoratively, mm-hmm. where... where One has many large spaces all over the world. And I was speaking to one uh, person from one of those galleries who told me that they had 70, seven zero artists, and each artist had two dedicated staff members. Uh, But the fact is that we operate on an old-fashioned business model of people coming to one address to look for works of art that we actually show them in real time, in real life, <laughs> and they make decisions about about buying them, and we have ex- and we do exhibitions too. But the idea of managing an operation on the colossal scale that some of these galleries are operating, well, it, it kind of boggles my mind, and it's a different system. I'm not sure that it necessarily encourages the kind of progressive innovation that has so far made New York a real center. Mm. I think that the ability of providing cheap 
housing and cheap studio space to young uh, men and women who were attracted to come here and are prepared to wait tables in order to try to make things that they feel they have to make, which is, I think, what operated in New York throughout the middle of the 20th century towards the end, is now non-existent because they cannot afford to come here. So they will go to Berlin or Hong Kong or Singapore or Amsterdam and they will find uh, funding in and outside of the system that that we think is the system. Yeah, I was, um, before I came upstairs here, the, um, the Rosenquist exhibition I was going through and I noticed one of the wall labels, it had the uh, green gallery provenance yes. And, I mean, it's a very famous name, but I'm sure today many people have no idea what the Green Gallery is. But it was basically this little shop that was the creation of, uh, I think it was Richard Bellamy. Dick Bellamy. Dick Bellamy and Ivan Karp. That was Rosenquist's first show. And he told me that he remembers, uh, his close pal at the time was another painter called Ray Donarski. And, and he and Ray went to the gallery before the show uh, opened and um, they bought a bottle of, of bourbon, I think, and, and some plastic glasses so that they could have something to drink themselves for Dutch courage. And Jim said he didn't think anybody was actually going to come. The show was, the show was, this was his first show. It was a sellout. But, um, and in those days, the backer of the gallery was Robert Skull. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Dick Bellamy himself, I think he would have agreed, not a great businessman by any means, but he, he was very de- he had a great eye and he was very dedicated. The big difference between now and then is that in the now part, that any young gallery that's showing a talented artists that's suddenly visible, that artist is going to get poached in a very short period of time by a much larger gallery. It's very unusual for galleries like that to be able to hold on to the artists that they help develop and put a lot of effort into. And it could happen right away or years later, but in my sense of the world of talent, it's it's a different, it's, it's a much more transactional, business, even on the small scale. Pressure, for instance, for an artist to be shown at an art fair, which is a colossal cost to the gallery. In that world of Claire McAndrews and number crunching, the art fairs are pumping in large amounts of those transactions, which, again, was not really the case, well, quite a number of years ago. I believe in this 2018 report, she says that 46% of all gallery uh, transactions take place at art fairs, yeah. which to me is, is uh, probably right and quite depressing because yeah. it means that people are not going into galleries anymore. They're, it's one-stop mm-hmm. shopping. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that in an art fair, maybe a seasoned collector, uh, but I, I don't know if, if somebody who wants to I don't know, have fun and learn how to be a collector is going to be able to navigate their way. 
through an art fair. What you said about the artist being poached is very interesting to me. I had a conversation on Friday with a young artist whose work I like very much. She's in Hong Kong, but shows in, in other places and, and does work that's not, not particularly, well, let's put it this way. She doesn't necessarily make unique, tangible assets. There's a conceptual aspect to her work. And she actually was talking to me in confidence about having been approached by mid-sized gallery and actually having, having, you know, having qualms about that, right? wanting to stay a kind of more of a free agent, being funded by smaller museums, foundations, being able to do whatever she wanted to do. I think there may be artists who are working in non-traditional ways, hmm. And I think they are the artists of the future. I don't know what those ways really are. Mm. And I think that they will demand different delivery systems. Mm. And I don't know, really know what those systems are. I think we are, not tomorrow, but I think we're drawing to the end of one kind of consumer economy when it comes to, well you know, easel paintings being passed from one hand to another, being made today and passed from one hand to another for increasingly large sums of money. I, I, think, that, I think there is there's a big, strange, conceptual, virtual waiting room where both artists and people who will be, I don't want to call them art dealers, producers, intermediaries, brokers, people will be finding new ways of, funding the, those artists and also perhaps engaging more members of the community in, in, in the work. I, I don't know. But we, what we do have to face is the fact that, well, let's say the, the, the larger scale museum system is one where they seem to be chasing the same small number of headline artists for, for box office return and boasting about the hundreds and thousands of visitors they have, what concerns me is what is, what is the quality of the experience that they're delivering to those visitors? I mean, well, it's, they're, if not hand-in-hand, hand, certainly related in terms of what you were just referring to. Um, another part of that museum experience is that many of those exhibitions are sponsored by major art galleries or even auction houses, and they're promoting their own artists, which is, you know, it's almost like... How do you spell conflict of interest? When BMW had that giant, beautiful motorcycle show at the Guggenheim, and it was... Uh, supported it was funded by bmw which is like a, you know like you could say well that's a vanity show but in a way i think that museums face that problem today and you know i think it's pretty serious that just dialing back a little bit to the where hopefully these young artists will eventually wind up perhaps in a museum show who knows brings to mind this conversation i had some time ago with brent sycama a noted Chelsea dealer, very successful. And he started out, I don't know if it was a joke, but it was called The Living Room because I think his first gallery was in his mm -hmm. apartment. Mm -hmm. He had seen a work by Kara Walker at the drawing center and was just really impressed by it. And 
he knew that she didn't live in New York. So it was summertime. He's driving with his friend and says, oh, we're, um, we're near where Kara Walker must live. His friend said, well, why don't we stop and try to find her? Now, this is way before the mm-hmm. internet, Facebook, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, cell phones, even. Yeah. So he went and he got from information her number. She answered the phone. Yes. He went to her studio and yes. she began exhibiting yes. with him. And he said, much to his amazement, she never left the gallery, oh. even though of her enormous fame, success, that he's in that model that you're referring to that perhaps is on its way out, the gallery model, um, it still works in certain... I, I would hope yeah. so. Mm. I mean, that, mm. that is very encouraging. Mm. That's the kind of loyalty that Leo Castelli engendered with his artists, where there were there was a handshake that lasted decades until until he was no longer there for many of them, even though well even even though nothing he did a good job for them and they and they were loyal to him, but certainly they had opportunity to go to go elsewhere. I would say my guess is that right. is the exception rather than the rule. Hmm. And it's because of, it speaks to the character, not only the character, the success of the relationship, Hmm. success in every sense of the word, not just financial, Hmm. but the character of the individuals involved. I think at the other end of the spectrum, you and I have seen a huge amount of leapfrogging of of famous name artists backwards and forwards between very well-known Galleries rather like a Hollywood star going from one studio yeah. to another, yeah. being lured by a, a, a yeah. bigger salary or a, or a bigger space. The belief used to be, I think, among artists and even among collectors, that a particular dealer or gallery director who had espoused an artist had knowledge about that work and enthusiasm which they would transmit because they had made an investment whether it was a financial investment or personal investment an emotional investment an aesthetic investment in that so you went to a gallery to see an artist's work and to speak about it with somebody who knew the artist Mm. And, and not for social reasons not because you wanted the artist to come to your dinner party but because you felt this would you know be part of your education as a collector but now it as you said i think the key word is it's all transactional it's it's no longer a question of relationships it's a question of what's the deal Uh, are you giving me the best deal is this the best price you have for this blank star fill in the name artist and do you have a red one? And can I get it for X? And can I be top of the list? Can I be the first one? That's a different kind of world. That's a, that's a brave new world of transaction and, and tangible assets. But you and I know a lot of people in this business who are well-known in this business, who are very successful in business. This is the language they speak. No, that's true. Uh, I mean, the the... I don't know, it's almost like a caricature now, but it it has become 
more of uh, reality, but it's changed the fabric of, of, of the art market. I mean, and like you s- said initially, making the differentiation between small private galleries and the giant white, you know, it's like the equivalent of Amazon moving to Long Island City or, I mean, it's, um, it's very different in terms of how, how those, you know, different machines work. And I think a lot of it has to, uh, is in transition because that old style gallery system, at least in a place like New York and probably London and probably some other major cities, it's simply too expensive to, uh, to have that model. Unless there's a wealth involved behind the gallery or some sort yes, of... Yes, and sometimes yeah. there is. Yeah. I, I mean, even, even... I mean, Betty Parsons couldn't have, have, have refused to sell Rothko's to people she didn't like if she didn't have, you know, what the English call private money. But it wasn't a vanity gallery by any means. Yeah. Uh, so, and there, there, I think there are galleries around the world that, that, that probably are funded by, by personal wealth and they do a great job and, 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 and sell well for the artists. It's funny, I occasionally get a, a magazine called Art Asia Specific, which is an English language magazine covering Asia. And it's always kind of interesting to me. It covers half the world. They do a lot of reviews. They do interviews with people. And I don't, I don't think I've ever read an article that has to do with money, you know, and they do talk about museums, talk about galleries. It convinces me that somehow <laughs> there is a world out there that is managing where every aspect doesn't turn on, on the deal. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not Pollyanna about this by, by any means. To go back to what you said about the um, kind of the language aspect of things, I think what what may have happened is that art world specialists, I use the word very, very broadly to include auction people, people like myself, dealers, gallery owners, we've become so used to business speak that we attract or we this is what we are teaching our new clients. In other words, this mm. is how and they, they may find it easier to use this language than a language that has to do with or about the art itself, which we know is difficult sometimes to talk about or, or describe eloquently, uh, unless you are some kind of uh, super poet. But basically, it's a self-fulfilling kind of approach whereby you can avoid the subject of what does this work of art, what is it? What does it mean? What does it mean to you? Is it good? Is it bad? Because what you use about it is language that has to put it in a context of what it is worth, was worth, will be worth, and then how it fits into the value of Similar work by that artist, similar work by other artists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everything is contextualized in a in a monetary fashion. Yeah, indeed. I, I mean, a dealer told me I've heard this before, but in terms of someone who's been in business for a while, that the conversation has changed 
over the years where it's really a much, it's like shorthand. Well, what is this going to be worth in 18 months or something to that effect? And which brings to mind, and I, I was somewhat shocked when I read about it, but then I went, oh, well, but going back for a minute to the auctions, and I'm not trying to talk about the auction world, but it's really interesting that one of the famous single owner sales that took place in New York was the Gans collection, which took place in 1997 at Christie's and made this record price for a single owner sale. And, and everything about that sale was about Victor and Sally Gans, this couple, they loved art, they went to the galleries every week, they, they didn't have art advisors, they didn't have curators telling them what to buy. It was their passion, vision, et cetera, et cetera. And they had an extraordinary collection. So fast forward to something called the Panama Papers, which was a, one of these um, huge leaks of financial uh, recordings from some offshore law firm that was handling lots of wealth wealthy people and countries, et cetera, et cetera. So it turns out that the Gans collection was actually owned by Joe Lewis, who was at the time at Christie's, was when Christie's was still private, was a major shareholder. And he bought the collection before the auction. That said, that would have been a very different picture if their transparency was you know, this was sold, but now this billionaire currency trader, this is his collection, but it's not called the Joe Lewis collection because who would care about Joe Lewis? Fast forward again, um, just last week when this David Hockney painting sold for the most money ever mm. living for, artist, for a living local, artist, yeah. you know, 90 point yes. three million, And Joe Lewis was the seller. And so it's just interesting how the whole monetization, if you want to call it, corporatization of the art market, the art world, the museum world, the UBS art fair backers yeah. of the world. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's very different from what one might normally think about what is entailed in that world what you mm -hmm. see is mm -hmm. not necessarily what you um. what you get i don't know if auction results are infallible but they are certainly used as a barometer by everybody including me you know um what you describe in terms of gans is probably really a, a kind of a form of a early form of a guarantee situation mm. yeah what fascinated me about learning more about the Ganses when I was at Christie's and then those works mm -hmm. that were for sale is that uh, Sally Gans, after her husband had passed away, she lived for quite a, quite a while. Of course, she was devoted to the collection. She enjoyed it. She did once remark that she never had a fur coat, that they never had a second home, that every penny he earned he bought you know and first of all he bought Picasso's 
And the first Picasso he bought, he bought because he saw it in a gallery and it was owned by Mary Callery, who was an American sculptor living in Paris, and she didn't want to sell it. He looked her up in the phone book, to go back to phone books, and persuaded her to sell it to him for an amount he did not have. He was in the beginning, starting off in the jewelry business, basically uh, went into debt to buy it. And kind of that was the story of spending more than he could afford to buy what he thought was the best by a relatively small number of artists, all of whom uh, history smiled on. I believe, and I still believe, that is the approach to collecting that ironically, (laughs) eventually, produces fantastic prices. Uh, When Mm -hmm. collectors who are passionate and learn about things whether it's Robert Rauschenberg or Johns or, or Eva Hess, who he, who he stumbled into because mm-hmm. he was sick of a, going to a, a smoke-filled opening at Marlborough Gallery, so he went next door to Fishback, and Eva Hess was hanging her exhibition, and he didn't know who she was, and, and those were these weird stringy works, and he fell in love with them. So uh, is that serendipity? Is it a great eye? I'm sure almost everybody else would have told him at the time he was throwing his money away. Yes, you bought Picasso, but this, you know, this, this, is, this is nonsense. But, of course, in the fullness of time and to the, uh, to the gratitude of his, of his descendants, <laughs> these are the best. And, and sometimes you, you have to pay more for the best. And you have to pay what is painful at the time for the best. But you have it. And do you think that today the, I mean, that example of, Victor Gans um, starting out, is that possible today for a non-hedge uh, fund manager, collector, or to it, enter the world and... No, because the, the world doesn't work like that anymore. But, every, but, but ironically, hmm. the whole market is fueled by the idea that that can happen. Hmm. So people say to me, oh, I can't believe you were around then in the 60s. If I had been around then, I would have bought those Campbell's soup cans. I would have bought, well, frankly, I'm sorry you wouldn't have. If you look at a photograph of the Warhol's opening of, of uh, cereal boxes at the Stable Gallery in 1961 or two. The boxes are lying higgledy-piggledy on the floor. They're not, they're not sculpture. They're just thrown on the floor. They've just been silkscreened. And there's this crowd of people who are clearly coming home on their way home from the office, men and women in raincoats with their briefcases, their art lovers. They were the people around, Richard Brown Baker probably, and, and Bob Skull and others. It was no glamour. There was no champagne. There were no Klieg lights. There were no movie stars, Right. And those things were two or three hundred dollars a piece, and some of the, some of the people thought they were amusing and bought them. But that would not have appealed at all to whoever the investment-minded Wall Streeter of the day. That they would have been aghast at that. But the idea that that did happen, and some of those objects are now worth millions of dollars, is what drives people to actually spend huge sums of money going in with an artist who (laughs) has maybe three or four decades of work ahead of them and a career to sustain, and their prices are already at a few hundred thousand dollars. 
and good luck. I think it's probably a much better position to be, say, a young artist who has a lot of social media skills and personal skills and presumably a lot of talent to negotiate the terrain in the art world today than say some collector who's you know done pretty well in whatever business they're in because it's it's so i mean it's competitive on both whichever way you look at it from a young artist trying yes. to get a show to emerging collector who's trying to get, oh, you know, I really want that artist. And then um, there are five art advisors standing in front yes. of him that know personally the gallery and et cetera, et cetera. And what about the yeah. older artist who can't get their head around the fact that they need a website? You know, they're still thinking of taking their slides around. You know, and they're good and they've had a career and they, you know, and they're in a lot of museums. But, you know, there's a, there, there, there are huge holes in this system. Huge. And I think there are very good, I think there are good artists doing good work. And I use the word good because I do believe that there is such a thing as quality. I think, I think there is still, there should be a sense of quality. Although sometimes I think that's probably a dirty word. A lot of people wouldn't agree with me that you can have, can still say it's good or bad. If it's very expensive and a lot of people are buying it, it seems it has to be good. But I think a lot of those models that people have learned to live by in terms of what the art world is or what's romantic or, you know, whether you're talking about Julian Schnabel and broken plate paintings of the 80s or... Andy Warhol or whoever, it is radically different now. Yes. And I don't even know what it is now, but <laughs> it's, it's definitely these models, they're, they're really not imploding. I mean, you don't see, you know, 25 galleries suddenly closed in Chelsea. I mean, maybe there's so many hundreds of them, maybe there are that many, but it's, um, it's, it's, I think you see, you see some galleries that have appeared to be strong for 20 years or more mm. that are consolidating, becoming offices or yes. private, private operations because they can't sustain mm -hmm. with primary market artists mm. and they've never developed, well, why should they have developed a secondary market mm. point of view? What I think is interesting, one of the perhaps positive aspects of the intense interest in speculation is that it has led to perhaps the revival of interest in some artists who had early on in their careers significant success and who fell out of fashion. Maybe the work continued to be good or maybe it didn't, but for whatever reason, they, 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 they fell off the list, right? And now some of them are going back onto the list because obviously some dealers and some collectors are saying, wow, that seems quite inexpensive um, because they're comparing yeah. the prices even of their early quote-unquote classic work to that of mm. the work of very fashionable artists that isn't actually even yet classic. 
so there's a revival of interest, which I think is important because I think that the only way that people can have enjoyment or should, you know, get enjoyment out of collecting and making decisions is by comparing all kinds of different things and, and looking at everything. Mm. If you think you're buying a Joe Bradley and, that, and that's fine, wouldn't it be interesting to look at large abstract paintings by various different artists over the last 20 or 30 years? Why not? Mm. Before you make a decision. And that requires considerable time and effort. And the question is, is who's going to do that? But our, yeah. our uh, culture, mm. supposed, our technological uh, culture was supposed to relieve us mm. of so many chores. What I find ironic is that in olden days... <laughs> major collectors, whether we're talking about the Skulls or, or Cy Newhouse or John mm. Powers or Joe Hirshhorn, actually walked their feet on the pavement from gallery to gallery, sometimes with their friends, their relatives, their children, on Saturdays or Tuesday afternoons before openings. They'd wander in and out. These were masters of the universe. They, they were, they di and they didn't have computers either to make their money, help them make their money and yet they found time mm. to go and visit the galleries in this neighborhood and downtown and when Soho flourished out of their way uh, there weren't any restaurants it wasn't about being seen or being social mm. and they had a lot of fun and they bought some pictures along the way and I just don't understand why today's collectors I mean, they, they have time for two-hour lunches in restaurants that I won't name, but they don't have time to go around the corner and visit two or three galleries on a regular basis. Not because they're going to buy something every day, but to, to shoot the breeze and see, what's, see what I have or see what Mnuchin has or see what anybody in this neighborhood has. Just drop in. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that possibly is... Uh, if you're going to point a finger to anyone or thing um, would be the sort of explosion of art advisors, consultants that have managed to, it's like a seeing eye dog or something. I mean, in terms of going to a, going a day early to the art fair and canvassing every gallery. So when their client shows up, they can just take them to, you know, five or six places. There are, as you and I know, serious uh, personal curators who do who have built great collections for individuals. On the other hand, there are people who come to art fairs and ask us for lists of paintings and prices before we've even thought about what we're going to send to the art fair, so that they can then go to their their clients. I think you know this is like using a wheelchair. You don't need a wheelchair. You can walk. You don't need to use uh, pay someone. To, to take a photograph with their iPhone, why don't you go yourself and have fun and see something live? I'm happy to talk to you, um, you know, and my colleagues, we, we don't bite. These are presumably intelligent, talented people who, who are well off, right? So they, they, they can navigate socially. Hmm. So they're able to meet somebody who is a principal in the business at an art fair and begin to develop a relationship and have an intelligent conversation, talk about a work of art, and go away 
as you would walking out of a out of a store, this guy who's selling me the green beans, he seems to know what he's talking about, right? So, and you build mm. confidence, you build trust, and when you do that, I believe what happens is when I then get something that you have told me you are looking for, I'll call you first, and I'll say, you, if you want, I, I found that great early Rauschenberg drawing, or whatever it is, and you, you will come in and look at it, and maybe you'll buy it, maybe you won't. But I am not necessarily, if I've only dealt with an intermediary, and I don't really know who you are, I know you're rich and powerful because that's what the intermediary has said, I am not necessarily likely to be calling that intermediary first with something mm. that is great and good. And I think that's, I think every, any, every dealer would probably agree with me on, on, on that score. They would rather be dealing, and it's not because of the commission, it's not because of the uh, cost involved. They'd rather be dealing face-to-face -face with the person who is, quote-unquote, the end, end buyer. And, and, and that person should want to be dealing with, so many times I've heard, and it sounds crazy, art advisors say to me, oh, no, 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 my client doesn't go to galleries. Well, why don't they? Well, yeah. they want, they're, they're collectors, or they want to be collectors, but they don't go to galleries. They're too busy, or you don't want them to go to galleries. Maybe you don't want them to go to galleries because then they might meet me, and then they might not need you. I mean, I'm being, you know, kind of hmm. glib, but that, that I think is a is a is a fear. Yeah, I think initially the argument would have been in terms of on the, you know, behalf of the art advisor side would be say, someone who wasn't familiar with the art world but was interested and felt intimidated yes. by walking into a gallery. Yes, and many and, people are. And getting, you know, the... Uh, the snooty brush off. Yeah. And the, who do you think you are? Yeah, or just, you know, just not knowing how to do it. Yes. I'm sure once that first transaction occurred, it would change I, things. I, you know, if I that, know a lot of my mm. colleagues pretty well you know, over the years. I'm sure there are some galleries that give off that, that, mm -hmm. that vibe, but I think most of us have time mm -hmm. to talk to an interested new person. However, mm. I frequently hear this from a new collector. Michael, I, I know this is a stupid question, and I stop them there and I say, there are no stupid questions. There are mm. none. Mm. Is it real? That's not a stupid question. How do I know it's by that artist? That's not a stupid question. Mm. How do you justify the price? That's not a stu These are all good questions. There aren't any stupid questions, mm. really. Usually it's a germane, it could be a very germane question. They're, embar they're embarrassed or intimidated. They, they feel they, should, they don't need to ask, mm. right? No, the more questions they ask, the better we get to know each other and the more we can explore the education. It's our job to answer all the questions in a polite and friendly way. Can you get an education by going to an art fair with or without an advisor? I don't know. I get just a headache and confusion yeah. when I'm a visitor. Mm -hmm. This conversation about art advisors, yeah. and the idea that an auction house would be using this entity to charge clients 
money for giving their opinions about art or advising seem to completely undercut the whole purpose of auction houses and their, we have the greatest specialists, we can tell you everything you need to know about this work of art. Yeah, but auction that, houses doing private sales is also a mixed message. Uh, I mean, I mean, having a private having private sale um, operations. Yeah. If I have a painting I want to sell, how should I sell it? Will the same person give me equally good arguments for selling it at auction or selling it privately? If I go to an, one of the auction houses, May, maybe they can. I, I don't know. I think that the auction house ambition is to be all things to all people. They sell everything. They sell you a house. They sell you your wine. They sell you your art. They can invite you to a dinner party where maybe you could meet your, 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 your next spouse. Your, they give you a social life. They can put you in a magazine, you know, with a glass of champagne in your hand. It's almost miraculous what they can do. Completely. <laughs> all I can do is sell you, sell you a nice painting for a reasonable price. That's all I'm, my ambition is. <laughs> The rest is up to you. <laughs> the rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> Judd, thank you very much for taking time in this busy day to come to Aquavella Galleries and chat about a subject that we have spoken about many times in the past, and I hope we'll continue to have chats on and off the record, especially off the record in the yes. future. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. And from all of us, thank you for joining us in this episode of The Picture, Conversations with Aquavella Galleries.